Hello, and welcome to the Calm Scholar Podcast. I am your host, Alexander Evangelista. On today's episode, I meet with Lisa Kowalik, and we talk about her background, both in the Montessori classroom and as a professional meditation coach and guide. Lisa is amazing, and I really enjoyed this conversation with her. She leads a meditation at the end of this episode. I hope you enjoy it and that this meditation brings you a moment of stillness today. If you'd like to learn more about our one-on-one meditation coaching and even give it a try for yourself, you can check us out anytime at calmscholar.com. All right, welcome to the very first episode of the Calm Scholar podcast. We're both very excited to bring this to you today. And I'm joined today by the wonderful Lisa Kowalik. Thank you, Lisa, for being a part of this today. Thanks, Alex, for inviting me. This is really exciting. It is really exciting. In fact, when we were going through doing our test recording for this, we got 10 or 15 minutes in and I had to say, this isn't the real thing. Let's pause it here and and make sure we (laughs) save all the good stuff for later. There's so much good stuff, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, there is. And so, Lisa, you're you're native to the Chicago area, is that right? I am. So I grew up in a little town in northwest Indiana called Hammond, Hammond, Indiana. It's about 40 minutes out of Chicago, depending on how you drive. I can get there in about 35. Um, but yeah, so I'm just really familiar with northwest Indiana, the Chicagoland area, spend a lot of time in Chicago itself and, and all the suburbs and probably a three-hour radius from the heart of Chicago. Definitely a Midwestern mm-hmm. girl. Mm-hmm. Midwest at heart, that's for sure. One of, the things Absolutely. That, one of the things that's great about the Midwest is people are just really friendly here. That's one thing I've noticed traveling around. Not that people aren't friendly elsewhere, but people are extra friendly in the Midwest. I feel like that's a good thing to be proud of. Yeah, I you know, I find that and again, it's just because I'm from here, so I might have a, a bias to the lifestyle, but I find people here very collaborative and very willing to help each other out and it's just a kind of a down home girl next door, guy next door sort of attitude that I seem to find often in this area. Very neighborly. Yes, definitely. That that's definitely the feeling. You know, I was I was starting to say one of the things that really impressed me the very first time we talked was you know, right when we got on the conversation, right when we had our very first conversation right away, you said, you know, why don't we step back and just take a moment to fully arrive here? And I really loved that you did that. And I started doing that in more and more of my interactions, conversations with other Calm Scholar meditation guides. I made sure that we took that little moment at the beginning, but that's something I really attribute to you and really appreciate it that you took the intentionality to create that space. Oh, thanks, Alex. I, I do feel like it's so important, whether it's a conversation, any shifting we do in our day, it's so important to just arrive, to arrive in that moment with intention and with purpose and with awareness and to be fully present to who's in that moment with me, who I'm sharing that moment with. Let's arrive together. And yeah, I find that practice to be so centering. So what do you think, Alex? You want to have a centering moment right now? You want to arrive at our first Calm Scholar podcast? Yes, let's do it. Perfect. So I'll indicate the beginning and the ending of our, we'll do maybe like a one minute silent sit and arrival. And I'll hit a little bit of a a singing bowl to indicate the beginning and the end as we just settle in and get ready to share this time together. So just taking a minute to settle into this moment. You may want to close your eyes and just connect to your breath. Mm -hmm. 
And just exhaling anything that you might be holding on to from your day so far. And inhaling presence in this moment. Just slowly bringing our attention back to the community that we're creating here in the conversation we're about to share. And thank you, Alex, for practicing with me. Thank you. Yeah, I needed that. It's only, you know, 1130 in the morning, but, <laughs> you know, how, how much can you really accumulate before noon in a day? Turns out a lot. You know, so. Thank you for, for that, Lisa, and that, that simple practice of a moment of presence. I would love to have you share a little bit with our listeners and me. I'd like to learn a little bit more about your time in Montessori. And as a quick background for people who may not know what that is, can you explain a little bit about what Montessori is and maybe how that differs from a traditional school? Sure. So Montessori was named after this amazing trailblazer woman, Maria Montessori. She was an Italian woman and um, was a doctor. And I'm not going to give you the full background of her story, but she basically developed a school, a system where the philosophy was to follow the child and to provide for the entire child not just the academics, but the social aspects, the practical life aspects. And so really in providing these beautifully curated environments for the child to come to understanding on their own. So much so that Montessori teachers are not called teachers because we don't teach anything. We're called directresses because we direct the child to areas of the room and we help facilitate them in their learning at their pace in their unique way. And it's really about helping young children from the age of, you know, early toddler environments through to high school, just develop themselves and grow themselves. So my job as a Montessori directress was to just build this safe container for the child to learn and to grow and to develop. Yes, there were mathematics and language and geography and all of these subjects that they began to master, but it was done in a way where we were also growing grace and courtesy, awareness of the other, awareness of ourself, awareness of our place in the world. So I really have a sweet spot in my heart for Montessori. My parents started the one that I went to when I was a young child at two and three. And I worked at the school where my children went to. I really, really have such faith and such belief in this style of learning. And so where that differs from traditional learning is in a traditional classroom, 
we're all going to do the same thing at the same time. Mm-hmm. We're in a Montessori classroom. You're going to do what you need to do that day. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not a free-for-all. There's definitely parameters, and there's a lot of direction and redirection going on. But there's a sense of the child understanding who they are and what they need, and then developing the skillful ways to grow and develop on their unique on their unique timeline, but with what their unique skills are. It's actually fascinating. It's a fascinating way to to just allow for people to grow and develop without judgment and without these measuring sticks of you need this, you need to do that, and you need to do it in this order. Well, we all know people grow and develop and learn very unique ways. So when I take that philosophy, that Montessori philosophy, I thought, oh, adults could really use this philosophy, right? Of having people to hold this beautiful, safe space for them as they discover things about themselves. And then they're encouraged to grow and find kind of their sweet spot in the world. Right. One thing that jumped out to me as you were sharing that was you talked about the children in the, well, do you call it a classroom? I was going to say classroom. I don't know if that's the right, the right term, but yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a classroom. It doesn't look like any other classroom, but it's a classroom. Okay. Well, regardless, the, the children that were there that day, you, you mentioned something about them growing in awareness. I'm, I'm curious how your background in Montessori prepared you for delving deeper into meditation and the growing of awareness, the practice of awareness that meditation brings, how that's connected to your times there as a directress. Sure. So part of what I did as a directress in the classroom is I had to really watch each child and notice which child needs movement, which child needs to be sit, sitting down and have a little more stability. Um, and I would stand back and observe how each child, how they went through their day naturally, what their natural rhythms were. And at the end of the day, we had, we called it line time, and we did something called the silence game. And the silence game was basically meditation. And so I would ring a bell. And these are two and a half to five-year-olds. Toward the end of the year, they were three to six-year-olds. Right. And I would ring a bell and the children would all bring themselves to a centering place and to start breathing. And if we were a little more agitated, let's say it was September of the school year, I would ask them to pay attention to what can you hear in the environment? And I'd give them a couple of cues so they could still remain in silence, but they had something to do. They had a task. And by the end of the year, by May or June, I had children this young. We created this container where we were sitting in silence for up to seven minutes. Three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds. And it came from the beginning of the year. Their observations were, I heard a door slam in the other room. I heard people talking in the hallway. And then at the end of the year, they became so astute and they became so skillful that they started to say, I noticed my heart was beating faster when we first sat down and then it was slower toward the end. Wow. They start noticing if somebody next to them was wiggly or had a little more adjustments made, they were became aware of their neighbors more. So it was truly this growth that happened. With young, young children, again, we're thinking two and a half, three, four, five-year-olds who were able to maintain a sense of awareness and a connection, not only to themselves and to the classroom they were in, but to one another. And it's really profound. And I feel like, Alex, as adults, we so easily forget that there's other people in our lives. We forget that there's an environment outside of the one we're sitting in and we push and rush through things. And that's where the meditation practice, it builds our, it just builds our skill in sitting with every moment and with arriving, 
breathing into what's here, holding it with acceptance and non-judgment, and just holding this moment. And I thought, if children can do this, if three-year-olds can do this for seven minutes, wow, what a beautiful world we had if 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds and their parents could also be doing this. They could also be doing this centering work. Yeah. But did you find that that wasn't the case? It seems like those children are in some ways more advanced than you know the rest of us who are frantically living our lives, running from point A to point B and yeah. sort of perpetually overstimulated and overwhelmed. Yeah, absolutely. I I found that. Um, I would have parents in their intake forms fill out how they wanted their children to be kind and they wanted their children to learn how to, you know, play with others and to share their toys. And you would see some of these things in their intake forms of the goals that the parents had for their children. And these are the same parents that would pick up their children and they were on their cell phones and they weren't really fully present to their child when, you know, their child was saying, look what I did today. And the parents were like one minute or they didn't really stop what they were doing and become present in that pickup moment. Like I'm picking up my child from school. Mm-hmm. So often the parents weren't present in that moment. And it really became evident during parent teacher conferences for me that the parents oftentimes were working against the goals they had set for their children. Mm. So to give you an example, parents had their children so scheduled, so highly scheduled. And these are little people. These are little people, Alex. These are three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds who were going from school to a sports practice and then maybe to a private coach after that and then to art class and then to music class. And then they would bring their child exhausted to me the next day and wonder why, you know, the child had difficulty getting dressed in the morning or finishing their food or getting out of bed. And it was just, I I spent so many of my conferences, parent-teacher conferences, asking the parents to take a step back and to say, what are, what are your intentions here? in aligning our intentions with our actions so that our head and our heart and our actions were all in alignment. And it took a while for some of the parents to come to come around and realize this four-year-old's going to be just fine in college. They're going to be okay. Like we're pushing them so hard. It's okay to let them dig a hole, climb a tree, right. you know, fall off a chair, figure it out for themselves. Um, So it was those sorts of things that I found there was a disconnect. The parents wanting their children to be independent would come and pick them up from school and put their coats on. And I'd be like, hold on, hold on. We're working on that. You know, they can put their coat on themselves. Let them show you. Mm -hmm. But the parents were so rushed. Like, well, we got to hurry up and get their coat on, get their backpacks. We have somewhere else to be in 15 minutes. So it was just bringing awareness to parents who are very well-intentioned and very loving parents and bringing awareness to how their behaviors oftentimes acted against the goals they set for themselves and for their families. Wow. It takes deep awareness even to see that, you know, it takes somebody who is aware of the possibility of something different to understand that it doesn't have to be this way. Mm. Yeah, I would also I would also say because Alex we're so busy in our to-do list. Like what do we need to do today? That often we forget our to-be list. How do I want to be today? How do I want to show up? Um and our to-do list is so daunting and it's so mm. ever present. It's ever present. But what if we took just a moment? I want to be patient today. I want to be present to someone today. I want to be open. I want to be curious. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this idea of a, of a to-be list instead of a to-do list. As we were going through preparing for this podcast, you submitted a few ideas to me. And each one, I swear, could be its own episode. <laughs> Maybe there will end up being <laughs> the Lisa Kowalik show. <laughs> but one of the things that, that I'm, I'm connecting what you're saying to now is this idea of redefining what success looks like. And I wonder if this bears some connection to this idea mm. of a to-be list instead of a to-do list. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'm sure we all have people in our lives that we can look to. Maybe they're people in the public eye or people in our families and our friend groups who on paper, they have everything checked. All the boxes are checked. They look a certain way. They dress a certain way. They have a certain income level. They have a certain day-to-day life that from the outside looks perfect. Like, oh, that's successful. That's a successful person. But what I find is that when we have talks with the people we find that we claim are successful based on society's standards of success, and we have conversations and we find out there there's some stress there. There's some um, fractured relationships there. And not everybody, of course, and not everyone. I don't want to throw a big blanket over this. But when we all hold the same standards of success, whether it's X amount of income, looking a certain way, having a certain number of followers on Instagram or TikTok or whatever it is that each generation kind of sets up as what their standards of excellence and standards of success are. You find a bunch of people, the outliers, that aren't in harmony with who they're meant to be. When there's so many of us with so many talents and gifts. There's no way we have one set of success, of parameters of what success should look like. There can't possibly be. So what if we were to redefine what success meant in terms of impact? In terms of impact. In terms of how we're showing up not just for others, but for ourselves. Mm-hmm. What, yeah. how, how are we nurturing? How am I nurturing who Lisa is meant to be? And then I know these are my unique gifts and talents that the world needs. I've spent too many years trying to be somebody else. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Alex, I think it's a redefinition. And it's hard because we're still going to see things that are going to draw us to societal um, ideas of what success is. And now I know that you've had experience working with people from the corporate world as a meditation Mm -hmm. coach and a meditation guide. So this is not just kind of outside looking in, but this is Mm -hmm. diving into those waters and unpacking with someone where are the areas of your life that you are feeling disconnected. Is this, is this where you're, you're finding these commonalities is is from these clients that you've worked with? Um, I would say yes. And so I think a lot of times people from all walks of life have a, I'm not good enough voice in their head somewhere. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not this enough. I'm not that enough. I'm not, and it just changes as we get older and it changes as our circumstances change. But we have this I'm not enough voice in our head. I did some work with physicians. I was working with physicians on meditation and bringing meditation to the workplace. And it was there. I'm not present enough for my patients. I'm not mm. present enough for my families. Then I was in some corporate settings. And I'm not enough appeared there too. I'm not pushing as hard as the person next to me. 
my portfolio is not as successful as a colleague. I'm not connected to my family at home. And I'm not enough showed up there too. Mm-hmm. Then when I go to work at high schools and I work with high school groups, I'm not enough is there too. So what's enough? And that's where I think we redefine what success means. Uh-huh. And we redefine where we get our value and what our worth is. And so I find that it's a it's really a human condition. It's not really limited to what your occupation is, even where you live. It's a human condition. At some point, we all feel that we're not enough something. Sometimes we can feel that we're actually too much of something as well. Mm. And in some ways, yeah. that's similar. It's the, the inverse side of the coin as not being enough. Oh, I'm, I'm too um, too compassionate sometimes or I'm, I'm mm. too... Um, I move too fast or whatever it might be. I scare people off or I'm um, Mm. too boisterous. In ways, being not enough or being too much are not being okay with being ourselves in some ways. And our our entire society is built on the idea of not having enough. And it's like if you were to ask some, let's let's take a hypothetical ultra-rich CEO. There are many out there that we could use in the example, but if we were to ask them, you know, when when do you have enough? Now, this person could have a net worth of like four countries, but the, the question would baffle them because it's the idea of like reaching a level when you're finally satisfied is just so mm-hmm. far off like the operating system that they've been running under. And, you know, it's easy to have disdain for, for people like that in ways, but to actually have compassion for someone like that takes a different lens or a different mindset, but Mm. to be able to see the, the kid within them who still doesn't feel like they have enough for whatever reason, Mm. I I believe it actually was, um, uh, take not harm. So I saw you mentioned again in, in your intake notes or preparing for this conversation that you love anything written by take not harm. I, I was so excited oh, to talk with you about that. Me too. You know, when you were talking about the, the society that tells us that we don't have enough, I was thinking to myself, like, who are the people who have given us an antidote to that, who have given us a different way of being? And certainly meditation mm. and mindfulness being the path to that. But somebody like Tignahan is a wonderful example of somebody who is it who's his writing in his life is a constant reminder that the present moment can be enough if you only let it be. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, he definitely, his teachings and his style brought me really to a deeper meditation. I really accredit him with influencing my practice as it is today. Really? Um, absolutely. And with his passing earlier this year, just the, um, when you saw the communities of people coming to, so like in the Plum Village communities and in, in, in the communities where, you know, Ty really spent his time just to have the continuation of his work, the continuation of his teachings through all of us. It absolutely gives me goosebumps to think of how many people mm-hmm. right now at this moment, at this very moment, while we're sitting here doing this podcast, there are people right now meditating, not only for themselves, but for us. Not only for themselves, for their arrival in this moment and their acceptance of this moment being enough, but they're also meditating that we have that realization too. Yeah. I find that so powerful. At this very moment, people are, are people are meditating for our liberation from the thoughts and from 
the limitations we're putting on ourselves. It's so profound. What an antidote, you know, what an antidote to the reaching out for something else or something more versus the, the falling back inwards and realizing that there is enough there and that there's actually more than enough there. There's enough there that you can share with others. Yes, absolutely. And to slow down enough. And Ty was really big with walking meditation and just walking, just walking and feeling your feet on the earth and having that moment be enough. I have family members who can't walk, who aren't able to stand up and walk independently. Every day I get up and I walk. What if I were to bring my consciousness into that every morning and be grateful that I'm standing and I'm walking and letting that just be enough and then letting each moment follow? My, my question for you as a, as a follow-up to that is how has meditation changed your life personally? And what, what did that journey look like? Yeah, I've been really practicing, I would say, regular daily or mostly daily practice for about 10 years. And my practice has gone from silent sitting to TM to like practicing with a mantra to insight meditation um, to like my, you know, like a mindfulness meditation, which is how I sit more now is just being mindful of what's arising in the present moment, each moment and holding it. What my meditation practice has allowed me to do is so Victor Frankl said, from stimulus to response, there's a pause. And in that pause is our freedom. Mm. By sitting in meditation, when I get off my cushion, and when I go to my day, I have been able to have so many more purposeful responses and so far less automatic reactions. So I'm showing up as the person I want to be. And I'm so much more attuned to the people around me. I'm so much better equipped to handle conflict and things that are unpleasant. When somebody has a conflict with me, I'm so much better prepared to look at them and say, just like me, this person experiences pain. Just like me, this per- person wants happiness. They want a sense of belonging. So I can really eliminate judgment from my daily life. And I can hold each moment with kind of a tenderness, with a, with a curiosity, with a tenderness, with a sense of love and care. And there's, I, I don't know what today's going to bring. But I can just hold it all without judgment. I can just hold it. I can hold the unpleasant. I can hold the pleasant. And I can just be with it. And the biggest part is as I get to know myself better, I'm so much more equipped to show up for others in my life. I have to say, out of the things I've done for myself, yoga, healthy eating, meditation, regardless of what I've done in the last 10 years, it's my meditation practice that has brought me closer to who I believe I'm intending to be in the world and who I was called to be and how I was called to be. So not just the to-do list, but get me back on my to-be list. How do I want to be? How do I want to show up? There's so much wonderful perspective and insight in what you shared. And it reminded me of something that Thich Nhat Hanh said. Uh, one of my favorite things that he said that I always bring myself back to is understanding is the root of compassion. If you can understand 
that this other person is suffering, that this person that you want to react to and just jump into a response to is actually coming from a place of suffering within themselves. Or if you can even go deeper and understand why they feel that way, Mm. then it just takes the winds out of the sails of reactivity. And you're no longer being blown by an unconscious response, but all of a sudden you have compassion. And that was what I was hearing you say as you described the elimination of judgment, being able to hold each moment with tenderness and being purposeful in your response versus in reactivity. What a wonderful gift to be able to give yourself and what a wonderful gift to be able to give others in this world. And so I I have to ask you, you know, out of a place of genuine curiosity, if I came to you or somebody came to you and said, Lisa, how do I get there? Where do I start? Where do I begin? And what's needed along the way for me to be able to come to this place and and reside here? How would you start to guide someone who comes to you with that question? Yeah. So Alex, I think the first, the first conversation we would have, because I do think that working with someone is so valuable because that other person can be our, our mirror. They're our mirror and they help us to see parts of ourselves that we wouldn't see without them there. And they can help to guide us and they can help to um, help us to identify where we're going, where we're heading. And this is going to sound like it's um, a little bit contrary to what I just said, but then to kind of let go of where we're going, the destination, and to come back into the journey. And the destination then is still something we have on our site, but it's the journey that becomes the object of our focus. And it's the path that becomes where we set our intention. And so when I work with someone, everybody's different and there might be certain things that one person is looking for over another person. They may have um, qualities and conditions in their lives that they want to transform. So together we talk about that and we, you know, we work on what's the best way. What's the best way to get there? And I also think, Alex, the most important part for anyone contemplating whether they want to start a meditation practice, if they're curious about meditation is just to start and to get curious and to practice. So many people, I've heard so many people say, I can't meditate. I can't do it. And automatically they're kind of putting that block up, that wall up. And I would push back on that a little bit and say, if a two and a half year old, if a three-year-old can meditate, believe me, you can do it too. I've seen it done before. So don't be afraid to to try it Um, and start slow and and to be gentle with yourself and be kind to yourself. And definitely when we have someone, we have that sense of community, that togetherness, we have a sense of support, like, oh, I'm in this, I'm in this with someone. Someone has my back. Um, I'm walking this path with someone. One of the things that I find wonderful about you as a meditation guide and as a meditation coach is your awareness of language and how, you know, working with a client who is working through PTSD or traumatic experiences is going to differ from somebody, say, Mm -hmm. who is a corporate client or possibly a teacher or a caregiver. I really am, am struck by that in my conversations with you is your intentionality around language and when when and how you're going to use you know different forms or or words to help people reach ultimately the same state. Mm. I'm really interested in your work and experience with uh, veterans. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you got involved in that and some of the considerations you have as you're working with a client say who is an ex-military client versus somebody who comes to you from, say, the corporate world? Sure. So I would say, so my training in IREST, it's um, a form of yoga nidra. So 
it it's shortened for integrative restoration. And this was developed with the Department of Defense um, by a Dr. Richard Miller. And they're continuing to do research with our veterans and with our active military women and men on this practice of iRest. And Alex, that training really is very specific languaging and it uses very specific um, body scanning in a very specific method. So you're going to scan certain areas of your body in that order. And it's been researched to bring a certain level of um, resourcing. So a lot of times when someone's had trauma, I help them to find an inner resource, a place in them that feels safe enough to hold the trauma while working with it. And knowing that we're not just our trauma, we are also other things. And we slowly, very slowly, as people are able, we can begin to hold both the pleasant and the unpleasant together and have an awareness that we're not just one thing and we're not just our trauma. We're not just our trauma. And we can tap into our inner resourcing. So I actually have a client right now, an Air Force client right now, and we're working through with iRest, with um, with this iRest practice, you know, kind of what's coming up as there's a war in Russia and Ukraine, and it's bringing up prior yeah. experiences. So, but that said, I would say that regardless of if I'm working with a veteran, if I'm working with someone suffering PTSD, we all have trauma. We all have some kind of trauma. Some of ours is bigger or maybe more pervasive in our lives, but in, in a lot of times we all do have some sort of trauma. So even if I'm in a corporate setting, I will be conscious of using trauma-informed languaging and cueing because even though that client might not be coming to me with the specific um, disclosure that there's been trauma they want to work on, I'm going to assume that my trauma-informed practices are always the practices I should be using. So for example, just a very baseline example, when we cue meditation, um, I'll never tell somebody to close their eyes. There'll be an invitation, close your eyes if that's comfortable, or maintain a gaze in front of you, a low gaze in front of you. Because some people just closing their eyes alone could be triggering, it could be activating. So there's no reason for me not to use that languaging all the time. Um, So although there are definite differences, I bring my trauma-informed training into every session. You know, really allowing for each client to kind of ride their edge as they see fit, not as I want them, you know, I'm, if somebody's having a difficult time breathing or even sitting, then we could say, you know, open your eyes, you know, or, or walk. We can yeah. do walking meditation. We can. So there's so many ways because everybody's different. It's just about me bringing my awareness and my observation skills and co-creating with every client. Hey, we need to make this space, this space feel safe. Right. Whether it's a boardroom or a Zoom room. Right. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. Absolutely. Yeah, the idea of, of co-creating a space is, is something that I'm, I'm interested in because it's, it is different for everybody. And that's, like you mentioned earlier, having somebody to be with you and guide you through meditation is extremely mm-hmm. powerful. And Part of what we're doing here with Calm Scholar and with partnering with different meditation guides such as you is giving people a chance to experience that. You know, there's guided meditations or pre-recorded meditations out there on YouTube you can find and plenty of great apps, but having somebody understand, you know, why? Like why are you looking mm-hmm. towards meditation? What is it this area of your life, you know, this relationship or this experience? whether it's, you know, the loss of a loved one or 
just dealing with the stress and anxieties of of being a human in 2022 or what's going mm. on in the world. It's yes. seeing that our meditation coaches are able to take a completely different route with every person and bring greater awareness to the areas of, of the life that they need it. Like the reason why they're turning to meditation more so than just a practice. It really makes makes me really proud of what we're doing. and makes me really proud of all the work that you've done with clients over the past. It's something that I don't think people really know is out there. Maybe they don't even know that they need it or are interested in it, but co-creating a space with them that is extremely personal to them and using meditation as the vehicle and building practices that someone can take with them is, it really is a, a wonderful thing. And I'm always so proud of our coaches and, and our guides for dedicating yeah. their life to that. Absolutely, Alex. And just knowing that like meditation isn't one thing. It's not one thing. It's not one size fits all, right? It, it mm, becomes definitely. a way of life. It becomes more of a way of life. It is mindfulness practice. So meditation, help, that helps us to just become more mindful in the world. And we're going to do that in as many ways as we show up in the world. Yeah. That's definitely, definitely connects back to Thich Nhat Hanh and greater than that, you know, Buddhist philosophy and teaching that every moment, bringing awareness back to every moment, no matter what you're doing, you know, taking a sip of water, washing your hands, washing the dishes, mm -hmm. these can, they can be meditations in a way if you yes. continually practice presence. Yeah, absolutely. Well, before we get into the meditation section of our of our podcast today, there are a few other things I wanted to ask you, but we can kind of have it be like a lightning round, just because I would love for our <laughs> listeners to get to get a sense of a, a few other things about Lisa before we get into a meditation. Does that sound cool? All right. All right. I'm ready for you. Okay. So what are a couple books that you would recommend to somebody who wants to deepen their awareness in life or become more mindful? Okay. So I have to say, I actually am still, I'm going to, I'm going to recommend the giving tree because the giving the tree, giving although tree. it is a child's book, although it's a child's book, it has a lot of lessons for us about giving, being in relationship with others. Um, so that's definitely one. I love the four agreements. Um, Ooh, by yeah. Don Miguel Ruiz, Four Agreements. Um, that's a good one for me. Which of the meditate. agreements? <laughs> which of the four agreements do you find most difficult? Um, probably not taking things personally. Yes, so. I was going to say the very same one. <laughs> it's <laughs> tough. It's tough to go through right and not take things personally. Right. Uh, not making assumptions is right up there too, but. Yeah, Th those two are definitely tricky ones. Um, I have so many books that I, I literally could be reading 40 books at a time book. I constantly reading um, A Path with Heart, ja anything by Jack Cornfield I love. Um, Pema Chadron. Yes. Some of her books. Me. You know, Tibet Han had a, a little book series and it was tiny little books and it was. um how to eat, yes. how to love, uh -huh. how to sit, right? Tiny yes. little books, but I, I love those. Um, yeah. What about you, Alex? Well, I'm going to throw that back at you. Sure. Well, you mentioned, I want to make sure I say her name right. Is it Pima, Pima Shodron? Is that right? I've never like pronounced yeah, her Pema. name out loud. Pema. Okay. Yeah. She was a Pema Buddhist Shodron. nun, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So there's a series out there. I don't know who the publisher is, but they make these little collections called The Pocket, like The Pocket, mm. The Pocket, yep, yep. and every page is super digestible because it's maybe just a page or potentially front and back. It's just a snippet of their writing. And I love, I take my pocket, Tignahan, everywhere. I've gifted it out <laughs> like four or five times and I always have to go back and, and get a new one. Um, they, and they have one for for Pema as well. So I think that's a really good mm. way to just start getting really digestible, bite-sized snippets of insight that you could take with you 
into the day yep. by you know, yep. wonderful, uh, wonderful thinkers. So that that book, The Pocket Tignahan, is probably top of my list. Also, Excellent. it's a different thing, but uh, and you have to you have to take it with a grain of salt because it was an entirely different time. But there can be some great wisdom in Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. There can be some mm. powerful insights into how to look at yourself very much in the vein of not taking things personally or understanding mm. that we're all going to die and um, understanding the interconnectedness of life. There's there's some great gems in, in that work as well. But th- those would be a few that stand yeah. out to me as like simple things that you can turn to and, and start having them influence your philosophy or your thoughts. Yeah. And I would also say, you know, there, there's some things like if you're, if you're struggling with forgiveness, like, you know, maybe finding a book by Jack Cornfield on the power of forgiveness, or if you're being really hard on yourself, you know, radical compassion by Tara Brock. So if, if you kind of like, what are you working with in your life right now? And then finding things that support where you are kind of where you are in your life at the moment. That's one of the awesome things too, about being able to work one-on-one, you know, if a client comes to you is you being able to understand that forgiveness or self-compassion is, is at the heart of what you are going to work with them on over the next week or two and being Mm -hmm. able to help them find related resources. Yeah. Alex, and sometimes it's just about working with a client and even just identifying that some people don't even know that. Sometimes yeah. we don't even know that about ourselves. It's just getting to that level of awareness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one other question for you, just more so on a personal note, um, you know, what brings you joy or like, what are the things that you look forward to in life? A good cup of coffee in the morning. Um <laughs> Being outside, I did my yoga practice and my meditation outside today by a lake. Awesome, awesome. Absolutely, absolutely joyful. The birds were, I heard the birds, I heard the water. That brings me absolute joy. I'm going to say, when I hear other people laugh, like belly laugh, like those laughs you can't contain, that gets me every time. I I, I could know them. I I could not know. I could be in a restaurant, hear someone giggling at another table. Boom, I'm there. That absolutely <laughs> brings me joy. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, those are a couple of mine. A couple of mine. Just I love that. Being in being in nature, being with friends, laughing, yeah. learning something new, riding my edge to learn something new, mm-hmm. um, pushing myself, whether it's to go down a, a ski slope I haven't been on before or take an adventure, hike a trail I've never hiked, just being somewhere brand new. Yeah, that brings yeah. me joy. Me too. Me too. It's uh, one thing my dad told me once was that when you're a kid, you come into this world kicking and screaming and demanding, you know, everything is about you and your needs. And by the time you're a grandparent, pretty much <laughs> nothing matters. <laughs> I think that's exactly how he said it. <laughs> and, you know, all of a life is a journey from, from there to there. And so yeah, how can we connect more with the simple joys, the joy of being outside or of seeing our parents or, or our kids and just mm-hmm. having that be enough? And kind of like we were talking about earlier, this separation from what the world says we need for success, but mm-hmm. more so those small little things that make our day better. How can How can our mission be about appreciating those and having an open palm? and not trying to hold on to them when they're there and make sure they never go away, but accepting that sometimes they do. Yeah. Being okay with that ebb and flow. That it all will, right? It's impermanence. It's all impermanent. It's all impermanent. And that can be both scary and, and liberating in a way. I agree. Yeah, I agree. Good point, Alex. Well, I would love to conclude our session with a meditation for us, if that's something that we could do. Sure. So how long do you think we got? How long, how long do you want to sit? You know, let's shoot for 10 minutes or so. Something that, you know, anybody who comes across this could have enough time to really get into it, but it wouldn't be too overwhelming or too, too long. All right. Perfect. 
So why don't we just adjust your positioning, your posturing for the next 10 minutes, just arriving to yourself again in the new moment. The conversation's over, and we're now going to arrive into a sitting moment, a quiet moment. And I'll stop and start with the singing bowl. And so as we arrive in this sit, just taking some kind attention and just really sitting in a way, eyes open, eyes closed, that you may want to stand. You may even want to walk back and forth a little. Just really listening to yourself and what you need in this moment. And if it's comfortable for you closing your eyes or maintaining a soft gaze in front of you. Just really begin to connect with yourself by becoming aware of your breath. And using your breath to anchor you into this moment. Your breath only exists in this moment. Becoming aware of each in-breath and how it fills your belly and chest. And becoming aware of each exhale. Maybe noticing the coolness of your breath as it enters by the nose. Noticing the warmth of your breath as it leaves. Now we're letting your breath just do what it does. This rising and falling at its own pace. And bringing your attention to your body. Starting by noticing any places you're making contact with the chair, 
anything you may be sitting on. Maybe the floor if you're standing. Or if you're lying down, just noticing where's your body making contact? You may even feel your hands in your lap. Just resting for a moment this feeling of being supported. And if there's anything you can do to make yourself even 10% more comfortable, just make that adjustment now. Maybe imagining a waterfall, just a perfect temperature waterfall starting from your head. Just slowly moving down to soften a little more. Your eyes. Your face, your mouth. flowing over your shoulders. And softening your chest. Your upper arms. Your belly. Your lower arms. Flowing down over your hips. Your sit bones. To your upper legs. Your lower legs. And your feet. And just resting for a moment in the softening and in the space that you've created. Just resting in this moment, in this awareness of your breath and of your body. coming back to the awareness as often as you need. Just letting any thoughts float away like a cloud.
And if it feels right, maybe you might want to offer yourself a smile and allow that smile to wash over you. Make a home in your heart as you get ready to continue on with your day. Welcome back, everyone. I'm taking my time coming out of it. It was so mm-hmm. nice. Thank you, Lisa. Oh, thank you, Alex. Thanks for sharing your practice with me and just giving an invitation to others to slow down. Yeah, the waterfall felt great. So did giving myself a smile. Like, damn, I should do that more. <laughs> right, such simple things we don't offer ourselves. Right, right. Well, with that, Lisa, we'll go ahead and, and bring it to the end of our very first Comb Scholar podcast. I couldn't think of a better person to bring on and a more wonderful conversation. I was so grateful to be here with you today. And I'm really thankful that you're partnering with us, Comb Scholar, to be able to bring this to more people. And so very thankful for this practice today, Lisa, and, and for this conversation. And I hope that the rest well, of your day I. is as wonderful as this was. Oh, thank you, Alex. And thanks for the invitation and for the work you do to bring this practice to as many people as who want it and who are looking for it. So I appreciate the opportunity to partner with you and with Calm Scholar. And I'm very excited to be the first guest on the Calm Scholar podcast. <laughs> very the excited. The inaugural guest. I'm going to celebrate yes, with yes. my second <laughs> my second cup of iced coffee after this. Oh, nice. <laughs> I'll make myself a cup of tea. Awesome, Lisa. Okay, well, enjoy the rest of your day. And thank you again so, so much. All right, Alex, you too. Talk soon. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye.